Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to the 26th of February, 2021 Hong Kong Stories podcast. It's good to be back. Yeah, I had a bit of a break. I have only a few stories left to podcast, and I'll admit I was starting to despair. We couldn't hold workshops, etc., etc. You've heard all the complaints before, and you don't need mine on top of your own worries. Things aren't always easy, and choices are sometimes made where we wished we'd done things differently. But here we are again, and it's good to be in your ears again. Our first story for you today was told live, yes, live, at the Hong Kong International Literary Festival in November 2020. Neharika's story is about a clashing of worlds. The second story from Gina is also about a clash, but this time of ideologies. Before we get to today's stories, though, a huge thanks goes out to our loyal Hong Kong listeners. We miss seeing some of you in person, but we are also grateful for the time you spend with us on this podcast. Thanks go out to our international listeners as well. Hello to listeners in Canada, the UK, US, Netherlands, Korea, Japan, Thailand, Finland, France, India, and Singapore, just to name a few of the places our listeners are in. Thank you all for letting our stories into your ears. And finally, we do have some good news for you. Workshops will likely be resuming soon, and we have a show planned and in rehearsal for April 1st. No, I'm not trying to fool you. This is real. The show's theme is for you, and it'll be hosted by Gina. We had originally scheduled it for December, but now we're going to show it on April 1st. Tickets will be available on Ticketflap by mid-March, and will be live at the Fringe Thursday, the 1st of April. For updates, go to the website hongkongstories.com. Hong Kong Stories. It's better than drama. It's better than comedy. It's real life. And now with the story told at the Hong Kong International Literary Festival in November 2020, here is Neharika. It was a very cold summer morning, which isn't ironic at all if you're in the Himalayan mountains. I stood by a beautiful river surrounded by tall, snow-capped peaks, but I was dreading the next few minutes. You see, this was supposed to be my open-air bathroom for the coming days. Oh, so cold. I reluctantly took off my warm cashmere gloves and then laid open my pouch of toiletries. As I started brushing, I noticed this little girl watching me very intently from a few steps away. I guess she was about this tall. She would look at me, and then she would look at the pouch on the ground. And then she would look at me, and then she'd look at the small bottles of shampoo and soap I've stolen from hotels. <laughs> I, I clearly remember she was wearing this multicolored sweater, double her size, and her nose was continuously leaking onto it. But you know what? She still looked adorable. Judging by the permanent rouge on her puffy cheeks, I gathered that she was a local. I finished brushing, and then I bent down to catch some water from the river. <sighs> it was so cold, I dropped all the water. <laughs> I heard her giggle. 
She was laughing at my struggle. I turned around to look at her, secretly feeling accomplished to have made her laugh, but she ran off. This was my first morning at Yugar village in northern India. A village so small and so distant, it was practically disconnected from the rest of the world and also disconnected from the electricity grid. So, when I joined a volunteer project to set up solar electricity in the village, I was well aware I will not be getting any hot water showers. But I wasn't prepared for this. The villagers were thrilled to finally move away from kerosene lamps they'd been using for generations and were so excited at the idea of having an electric bulb in their houses, something we take for granted. They were so excited, they had a full ceremonious welcome for us with the full spread of local cuisine in the community hall. The little girl that had met by the river, she joined the ceremony with this army of toddlers, chaperoned by this old lady who was getting pulled by them in all different directions while she carried a baby in her arms. I figured she was their grandmother. I went up to the old lady wanting to offer help and also to get to know them. How old are they? I asked. Uh, well, this one was born last month, I think. The others, my dear, I don't remember. Well, silly of me to ask, I thought. It's not like my grandmother has been keeping track of my age. Throughout the day, our team then took breaks to interact with the shy but very curious villagers. I found the little girl hiding behind her father. She was stealing glances in my direction, but avoided eye contact. I went up to him and struck a conversation. I watched her as she clung on to his woolen lowers and spun around his legs while we were talking. What's her name? I asked. There was a blank expression on his face. I figured that he didn't understand the question. Naam kya hai iska? I asked again, enunciating slowly this time. Pata nahi. I don't know, actually. I have so many children, you see, he said with a guilty smile. Sometimes I forget their names. I struggled to return his smile, suddenly discovering how hard it was for me to empathize with their situation. He noticed my discomfort. But you can call her Tenzin. It's a very popular local name, and I'm sure she wouldn't mind. Of course, she wouldn't mind. Tenzin it is, I guess, then. The next few days just ticked along as we installed solar panels, batteries, and bulbs in the mud houses. I was excited. I was excited for Tenzin. When she starts studying, she won't be exposed to the toxic fumes from the kerosene lamps they've been using. But I did wonder, will she get an opportunity to study? The construction of their village school, the only school, had been abandoned when no teachers could be employed to make the daily trek to Yugar. It sat deep in the valley with no road access to the nearest town. Huh. The next few days, uh, the boys in the school were sent to a resident monastery when they turned six, but the girls were left in limbo. The last house that we worked in happened to be Tenzin's. There she was, 
cuddled in a corner, hiding behind her mother. She was pulling down on her wool hat to cover her face. My teammate very cleverly took that as an opportunity to engage her in a game of peekaboo. He covered his face. She covered hers. They peeked and she giggled. She peeked and she giggled. She then emerged from behind her mother, went up to him and opened her fist. She offered him a small plastic kettle she was hiding in her arm. I guess she invited us on her playtime. Being in the comfort of her home made her a little less scared of the unfamiliar faces around her. I joined in. We taught her how to count. One, two, five, and then high five. The whole room was echoing with her claps and her laughter. It was then time to go for lunch. Her father, who seemed to have enjoyed the jolly atmosphere, came up to me. He leaned closer and said, Will you take her with you? Sure, I can take her to the community hall. You take her. You take her home with you. The smile disappeared from his face and from mine. He loves her, doesn't he? I thought to myself. Why is he asking me this? He look after her, won't he? Oh, perhaps I misunderstood. I nervously laughed it off, but my stomach churned. I struggled to refocus on the rest of the work as I tried to reason with myself. Why would he put me in this situation? <sighs> that night, we finished our work and connected the final circuit. The village lit up festively and the whole valley erupted in cheers. Our work was done. The following morning, I stood by the river one last time, waiting for Tenzin, waiting to say goodbye but she didn't show up. Now, every time I thought back to that episode, I felt guilty, emotional. I felt like I left her behind. Then one day, a friend gave me a different perspective. This is a story, she said, of a little girl growing up in a world vastly different from ours, being raised by a father who loves her so dearly he wants a better future for her, even if that means giving her up. Now when I look back to it, I think of her running in the valley, in a village small but slowly progressing, surrounded by those who love her. I don't feel so emotional. I feel hopeful. Thank you. Thank you, Neherika, for leaving us with some of your hope. It's hard to step back from our own perceptions and see the world through someone else's eyes. When we do, our vision gets broader and richer. If you have a story of change and wonder in your life that you think you'd like to share, but you aren't sure just how, come to a workshop or get in touch via email through the website hongkongstories.com. Our next story steps back in time and brings us to a young girl growing up in a distant country and an encounter that left an impression. From a show performed live at the Fringe Club in 2019, 
Here is Gina. Who wears men's dress shoes without socks? Nobody does. It's an unspoken rule. Open toe sandals. No socks. Men's dress shoes. Please, you gotta wear socks. I mean, it's just unsanitary otherwise. The aroma when a guy takes off his shoes that he wore all day without wearing socks. Can you imagine? Right? Although, when I was 14, I wasn't exactly into men's fashion or sock-wearing etiquette. What I mostly cared about was for my pimples to go away faster, for my hair to be shinier, for my boobs to grow bigger, and also politics. I was into politics. <laughs> a bit peculiar for a 14-year-old, I know, but it was the early 90s in Moscow. Post-Soviet Russia was a fascinating time then. My family was very much into politics. Vigorous Yeltsin supporter. He won my family over by his promise to build democracy and make friends with the West. Being Jewish, my family also appreciated his opposition during the Soviet times to the institutionalized anti-Semitism when the ethnicity was written in your passport and there were quotas for Jews to be able to enter certain universities and some jobs were not even available for Jews to be considered for altogether. And so Yeltsin had a bit of a drinking problem. I mean, <laughs> he's a Russian man after all. This is, this is just how it is. He's a good man otherwise. So this one time, a friend of mine organized a sleepover weekend in a resort near Moscow for four friends. Two rooms, one for us girls and one on a different floor, very important, for her parents. Sleepovers were not common at all whatsoever. So my mom was a bit apprehensive about the idea, but my friend's parents assured her that they had absolutely everything under control and that there was absolutely nothing to worry about. I was thrilled she agreed. Staying up all night, gossiping about all the boys and who's going out with whom, who's wearing makeup and who's not, I had the time of my life. Contrary to what my, one might imagine um, about a post-Soviet resort, right, the place actually had very nice facilities. Swimming pool, ping pong, darts, enough to keep us busy during the day. By late afternoon, we noticed quite a few new guests arriving. Mostly men, mostly in suits. Looked formal, like a formal get-together of a sort. Some of them had jumpsuits. Black jumpsuits with big, heavy boots over pants and a symbol of a sword on the sleeve. Football team. Mm, no, I don't think so. Wait, looking for a far, the symbol looked like swastika. Possible? No, can't be. So one of the guests I quickly recognized as a prominent politician at the time, a very vocal activist, for the newly re-established Communist Party. He was in his 30s, or maybe 40s, or maybe 50s. I was 14. It was all the same. <laughs> he had um, a goatee, 
dark receding hair, average height. He was wearing a brown suit and black shirt, exactly how I remembered him on TV. Later that evening, he was sitting in a lounge area smoking. Cheap cigarette smell was adding to an already stuffy air, smelling like an old ashtray. Dim lights, big leather couches, and armchairs. As he was famous, one of my friends came up to him and asked for his autograph. We started talking. He asked us where we were from and what we were doing at the resort. Seemed very polite and very friendly, soft-spoken. He told us that the get-together was indeed a really a real, newly re-established Communist Party gathering. It was a summit to discuss the current pressing issues. As our TV at home was all on the time, with news channels being the center of all family dinners, I felt I was well-positioned to keep up with the conversation and ask appropriate questions. So I asked... So what are the pressing issues currently? <laughs> First and foremost, Zionists. Zionists. Being Jewish, I did know a little bit about Israel and was somewhat familiar with the term. So what I knew was Mount Zion is a mountain in Israel and that Zionist movement was basically saying that the home for all Jews was Israel. He leaned towards us, took another puff, and he looked at us as if he was demanding a full and undivided attention, as if he was about to tell us a secret. Zionists are plotting to destroy Russia. They want to see Russia on its knees. Who knew? Some of our non-Jewish neighbors would tell us sometimes to leave Russia and go move to Israel, where they tell us we Jews belong. I figured they must be Zionists, too. Had no idea they were plotting against Russia. Didn't make much sense, though. So I decided to clarify. And so who are these Zionists who want to see Russia on its knees? <laughs> Jews are, of course. Who else? Jews are. And it's all a Zionist conspiracy. Being 14, my first reaction was to argue and to prove him otherwise that, in fact, it was our non-Jewish neighbors who wanted us to move to Israel. And we were not that eager to uproot our lives. So, cannot be the Jews. I wasn't that naive to start arguing my Jewish cause in the middle of this neo-Nazi gathering. <laughs> so I just asked, and so how does this Zionist conspiracy work then? Well, did you know, for example, that Yeltsin's real last name is Eltsin? And Eltsin is a Jewish last name. So, huh? Well, you girls are just so naive. That means that Yeltsin was put in power by Zionists to destroy Russia. You see the chaos that's going on in this country? Yeltsin, or should I say Eltsin, and all those sneaky Jews behind the scenes, they're all doing it on purpose. He leaned back, 
sitting comfortably with one of his feet resting on the other knee. I suddenly noticed he was not wearing socks. <laughs> Dress shoes, no socks. I might have not been into men's fashion or an expert on sock-wearing etiquette, but that was just so wrong. <laughs> I wonder how long he had his shoes on today. His feet must be so stinky and itchy and uncomfortable. I mean, why would you do that to yourself and others around you? You just wouldn't. I could no longer focus on the conversation <laughs> as the snow sock situation was right in my face. And while I probably should have been scared and feeling fear and threat with my Jewish face and curly kinky hair, but all I can think of was his stinky sockless feet. <laughs> I mean, come on, you're famous. I've seen you on TV many times. You should know better. <laughs> when I came home, I gave my mom a full update on my most exciting weekend ever. Swimming pool, ping pong, darts, communist party get-together full of neo-Nazis. <laughs> and sure, it is interesting that this communist guy turned out to be a neo-Nazi, but did she know that he actually does not wear socks with his dress shoes? I mean, who does that? I guess neo-Nazis do. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's stories brought to you by Hong Kong Stories. The music for this podcast was written and performed by Andrew Robert Smith. Everyone has a story to tell.